Dear listener, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listener, over the weekend, I had the opportunity to catch up with two of my favorite journalists, Sarah Jones, staff writer at New York Magazine, and Don Arujo Hawkins, news editor at the Christian Century. Dawn, who is Christian, and Sarah, who is atheist, are both fiercely driven in their fight for justice, and I continue to be impressed by the passion and determination they put into their craft. I'm grateful we got to talk together, and I'm happy to share our conversation with you today. I can't remember. Have you have have you met each other? Have you ever met before? No, I don't think so. I saw you once on a RNA panel. But that was it. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. That was feels like a century ago at this point. Yeah. But it, <laughs> I think I was pregnant with my first child, and he's almost four. So, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Dawn, how are the guys doing? <sighs> They're okay. They're okay. Um, my almost four-year-old found his trick-or-treat pail last night while I was looking for something else in the basement. And so he's all about um, asking us for imaginary candy. And that has oh. been interesting. <laughs> he walks around with it and asks us trick or treat. Uh. <laughs> I respect that. Halloween's a, it's going to be confusing. You know, everybody's already wearing masks. And, yeah. You know, it's just going to be more nutty, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. When my daughter was really young, we would take her out trick or treating, she'd fill up the pail. And then I, I would immediately hide it. Yeah. And then her goldfish memory would just forget the fact that, you know, <laughs> there was a fun thing of going out, but would forget the fact that she had this store of candy yeah. anywhere. And then during the year, I would pilfer it little by little. Um, and like when I went to the movies with friends, I would just fill up a Ziploc bag full of candy bars yeah, yeah, yeah. or whatever the case is. And then it would be empty by the next year. There you go. So, but yeah. Finding an empty pail and imaginary candy, I'm sure that's making your life a lot yeah. more stress-free than it could have. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and Sarah, you 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 know you don't have have babies, but you've got cats, right? So how are Kamala and <laughs> Natasha doing? Um, they're you know, they're they think this is great. They love having people around, so they think <laughs> it's super exciting and. Th- I feel like every interview I do recently, I can hear a cat somewhere in the recording. And like, I just <laughs> apologize to everybody I talk to because you can hear one of the cats screaming at something. <laughs> you know, but what can you do? <laughs> so not so different from babies then, actually. <laughs> Sometimes I kind of wonder. Well, I, wa- I wanted to know, Sarah, um, how does your cat feel about her name being so familiar to the possible future VP? Do you think it's going to be awkward oh, for her? I, she's got to explain at parties when people assume she's named for Kamala Harris. <laughs> this has actually been like an issue. So um, obviously my cat is not named for the prospective <laughs> vice president of the United States. She's named for a comic book character. Um, we even thought about renaming her because it was so confusing. Um, <laughs> sometimes we just call her Koala because she looks like a koala. little bear and it kind, of, <laughs> it kind of sounds similar. But she, she doesn't recognize it, so it's not going very well. Uh-huh, uh-huh. 
Well, it's really wild that, you know, Dawn and her husband last year named their son Biden a Roger Hawkins. So, you know, that's that's awkward, too. Total coincidence. He's probably too young to feel self-conscious about it, though, right? Mm-hmm. I'm really curious, um, getting the both of you together in particular, not just because you're, you're fantastic award-winning reporters and stuff, but you also, you know, I think have um, shared values, but, you know, have have stridently different you know life paths in terms of, of perhaps how your how your um, uh, religious formation and identity and everything um, you know has has come to be at this point so I wanted to you know just talk a little bit about start there talk about your upbringing and and how that shaped you um, so Sarah do you have do you have a a memory from your school age years that sort of exemplifies you know what was what your religious formation was about and and sort of how you how you processed it as a as a young person uh, several honestly um so i grew up very conservative evangelical in the south um so i went to a, a fundamentalist high school for a couple of years and we had chapel every week and then we had revival services once a once a semester and so this would mean like singing groups would come in from like Bob Jones University or Pensacola Christian College. Um, that's how conservative we're talking about here. Mm. And I do remember that a speaker at one point um, pulled a baseball bat out of a as a prop and said something about beating the sin out of us, um, which he did not physically enact, fortunately. Um, but, that but was it wasn't funny. clear for a minute there whether <laughs> yeah, he would or not. Like, oh, wow, what's happening here? This is way more exciting than I thought chapel was going to be today. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so that was sort of the religious environment. My parents were not quite that extreme them- themselves as like individuals, but um, this was a very, very rural and conservative area where that was, you know, it's very fire and brimstone. Mm. And how, how did you... Um, thrive or not in that environment? Mostly not, I would say. Um, you know, I went to a, a conservative evangelical college eventually, um, which is incidentally where I became an atheist. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> it, but I will say that that's all very negative and not not good, obviously. But I, I will say that that one one positive thing that I I have taken away from it and I think influences the things that I I write about and care about as a journalist is just this idea that you're supposed to live with conviction and you're supposed to live very loudly with conviction and it's good to have principles and it's good to have moral standards about things and obviously the way I define those standards and principles is very, very different Um, but I still think that they're extremely important for, for a person to have. Dawn, I'm I'm curious for you. You you went to a, a a Christian school as part of your education, also, right? Yes, um, not on purpose though. <laughs> um, I <laughs> long story. Long story. You didn't read the literature too well, closely. Well, okay. I, let me. I so after I finished my undergraduate degree in journalism at Ball State University, non-religious school. I not a religious school. Not a religious school. I decided that I wanted to go to seminary because I wanted to be a religion reporter. And I thought that seemed like, you know, the thing to do. And I really 
wanted to go to a non-denominational seminary and I thought this existed in the world and I had some other restrictions like I thought my grandparents were going to die soon so I wanted to be like very close to Indiana um, where my family was and so I didn't want to go out to the east coast anywhere Um, and so I found this school in Cincinnati called Cincinnati Bible Seminary which should have tipped me off to some things. Oh no. But it did not. And <laughs> they um they they marketed themselves as being non-denominational and it was not until I actually went there that I realized that they were a very conservative denomination that did not believe in denominations, which is why they thought they were non-denominational. <laughs> so <laughs> but I stuck it out. I was like, I'm not, I'm not gonna leave. I'll just finish this up. <laughs> so that is it was why actually I have... a, it was a grammatical error. They they uh, are a, a misspelling. It was a it's a non non denominational. <laughs> right, school. right, right. But that's why Double I have negative. a master's um, in religion, urban and intercultural studies from Cincinnati Christian University slash Cincinnati Bible Seminary, which is no longer open. Um, uh-huh. And it was an experience, an experience for sure. I... <laughs> the accelerated course. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, and, and what about your, your upbringing before that? What, 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 um, I assume you were brought up in a Christian household? Yeah, I went to a huge black mega church in Indianapolis, which is where I'm from, um, Eastern Star. It used to be called Eastern Star Baptist, and now they're not Baptist, and I have not found out why the Baptist was dropped, but I've been digging into it. Huh. Um, <laughs> huh. Uh, so that's how I was raised, and my mom's rule was... Um, you had to go to church in our house until you were old enough to drive. And once you were old enough to drive, you could either go to a different church or you could choose not to go to church. And I chose not to go to church just because I wasn't sure what I believed about things. and I just didn't want to go. And then the summer before I went to college, I kind of out of nowhere became obsessed with like the person of Jesus. I was reading all of this Christology, just anything I could get my hands on. And then once I got to college, just kind of fell into going to church again. I really can't explain how or why I ended up doing it. And so I, for most of my young adult life, was going to non-denominational, on purpose, um, evangelical (laughs) churches. And then about seven or eight years ago, I found my spiritual home with uh, Mennonites. And so I now self-identify as Neo-Anabaptist because, well, there's a lot of cultural things that go into calling yourself a Mennonite. I feel that I just never really embraced, like I didn't eat Zwiebach until two years ago. I had my first pepper nut last year. It's like, can I really call myself a Mennonite? And then okay, I just... those, those, are, those are some in, <laughs> those are some in the weeds references there. You're gonna have to break that down a little bit. Well, well there. Uh... Well, first, first, first of all, start start with 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 Mennonite and then Neo Anabaptist. Can okay, you define yeah, those terms? Yeah, yeah. So, within larger Anabaptism, which is there was a split Reformation after the Protestant Reformation of um, what became known as Anabaptists. And the big thing at the time was they did not believe in infant baptism. They believed in a believer's baptism, which was heretical to everyone at the time. 
And so they were, mm. the name Anabaptist comes from that. I think it means re-baptized. And they were persecuted mostly in Europe. So it's a, it's a very mm-hmm. originally white, very European um, denomination. And there are lots of splinter groups now. Like the Mennonites are part of the Anabaptists. The um, Brethren are, Men- are Anabaptists. And so there's lots of subsets of Anabaptism. But I started going to Mennonite churches. And like I said, there, there's a cultural... And Mennonite as- is not to be confused with, with Amish. I think a lot of people... No, they're cousins. Amish they are cousins, uh-huh. yeah. But uh-huh. um, not, not the same. Although there are some old order Mennonites who... I guess visually, most people would associate them with the Amish. They know they do the buggies and the head coverings, um, but mm-hmm. that's separate even from like Mennonite Church USA, which is the kind of big denomination in the United States. Is um, I guess more contemporary is a way of saying it. And okay, um, so yeah, I go to a. Tr- I've been going to churches that are associated with Mennonite Church USA, but like I said, it's there's an ethnicity to it, like. There's a whole culture. They have like foods and songs, and they're very welcoming. But I just don't identify with those things, and so I always struggle to call myself a Mennonite, um, even though I've been mm. hanging around them for almost a decade now. And so, and break I, down what was the food, the food thing that you, okay. that you were mentioning. <laughs> so Zwiebach <laughs> is this roll, and it like has this little like knob on the top. <laughs> And it's like just this bread that a lot of cultural Mennonites, ethnic Mennonites eat at a lot of gatherings. And then pepper nuts are these little spicy, hard little cookie things that are frequently um, eaten around Christmas time. Like my church does a pepper nut bake sale in the, like the youth group in the in the around Christmas and I've never had one I tried to like give the kids some money but I'm like I don't even know what a pepper nut is I had one last <laughs> year it was pretty good um so then I heard but this it falls tra- it falls into that 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 Saturday Night Live bit where it's it's a, a pepper nut is neither a pepper nor a nut <laughs> see I don't even I don't even know that cookie. reference so I'm like that so oh. really I don't like embrace oh, you're these so things young. I don't oh, embrace so young. well I don't say it <laughs> It's not that I don't embrace these things. I'm interested in them, but that I don't connect to them on a deep level. You know, so when I heard this term uh-huh. neo-Anabaptist, yeah, yeah. which is people who um, embrace Anabaptist theology, but perhaps not cultural Anabaptism, mm. I was like, that, that's me. So that's what I've been calling myself for about a year now, neo-Anabaptist. Wild. Okay. <laughs> right. right. And... Did I read correctly that you had a past life as a pageant winner? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I, so tell me tell me a little bit about that. About pageants. Okay. So it started my sister, my younger sister Joy, got a brochure back it had been 95 because she first did a pageant in 96. So 1995, 1996, Mm. my sister gets this brochure about this pageant for young girls, builds confidence, all this stuff. And she says to my mom, I want to do this. And my mom said, absolutely not. Like, we do not do pageants in this house. And so the legend has it. My sister put the brochure under her pillow and she prayed at night. She said, God, please let me do this pageant. And so the next Mm -hmm. day my mom says, if you can raise the money for the entry fee, you can do the pageant. 
So she puts on her Easter clothes and walks around my grandmother's neighborhood and like knocks on doors and these people just give her money. She does this pageant and is first runner up. And my mom says, Dawn, do you want to do it? I'm like, no, because I'm a very shy and introverted person, but I'm also a deeply analytical person. So then I'm kind of watching my sister do this. I'm like, there's just three competitions. Like you just got to win these three things and then you win. I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. So I did it the following year. And that really kind of started our family's kind of obsession with pageants, like how other people play sports. We did pageants. Um, So I am a five-time Miss Indiana from various different pageants. What? Oh my goodness. (laughs) Wow. I I didn't realize we were were in the presence of royalty. Wow. (laughs) Oh gosh. Uh, We were pretty hardcore about it. I think I'm done. I think I'm mean, they have pageants. I think I'm done. <laughs> Two kids in. <laughs> well, they have they have pageants for married women, and I think sometimes, like if I yeah. had more like free time, maybe because I do kind of miss the competition mm-hmm. aspect of it. But yeah. it's a lot of work that I just I don't have the energy for right now. So I think I've hung yeah. up my heels, yeah. probably. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of us assume pageants are really like antiquated and vapid, but I think what I was reading about was that the experience, it seemed like it prepared you for activism and a commitment to feminism. It seemed like there was, that was what I was getting from uh, Yeah, for, for me, yeah. I, I mean, I think any experience, you kind of have to take your own personal, sure. like, you know, personality into it. But for me, as someone, like I said, very shy and very introverted, um, having a mission when I spoke, um, even if that mission was just, you know, to convince the judges that, you know, I believe in whatever platform it it was at the time. Um, I think that really helped shape me into the kind of advocate that I am now, definitely the journalist that I am now. I still like freak out when I have to call people on the phone because I'm very shy and very introverted, but like I have stood on stage and, you know, walked around in five inch shields, like I can call this person. Um, So for me, it was very (laughs) um, rewarding and helping me to build um, just an ability to speak to people and a level Mm. of confidence that I don't think I I personally would have gotten elsewhere. Hmm. What about you, Sarah? Were you a regular on the pageant circuit growing up? (laughs) I I have to say no. Uh, I'm a marching (laughs) band. Marching band. I mean, the outfits in marching band are fabulous. Uh-huh. There was a silver cape involved. It, you know, the kids had caps, the feathers on it. Um, but no. <laughs> what was your instrument? So I played oboe during orchestra season, but they the oboe doesn't march. So they had nothing to for me to do. <laughs> they had to come up with something, and so they put me in the percussion pit. So if you go to a football game. And you see the kids off to the side playing like cowbell and marimba. That was me. <laughs> I played the cowbell in marching oh, band. Oh boy! <laughs> yeah, the oboe. I mean, that's ambitious too. Because I'm, I'm gonna say, you know, you're not playing in the NBA anytime soon. Here, the oboe is a that's a tall instrument. To it's it's a rough a, instrument. A yeah, it was. It was <laughs> I have to say, like, I share the thing about hating to call people, which I it's like I'm a journalist. <laughs> Just my <laughs> number one job description is to call people on the phone, and I hate it so much. Yeah. I think there are a lot of yeah. us secretly. <laughs> yeah. So I have to remember, you know, if I could play the cowbell in front of a packed Friday night audience, I'm sure I can call this person. <laughs> 
That's as close as I come. Uh -huh. <laughs> All right, well, so um, speaking of pageantry, um, the last couple of weeks we've been experiencing the Parade of Stars that is the uh, Republican and Democratic National Conventions. Um, and, and I wanted to just get your, your takes on, you know, this is each party's big primetime showcase, a lot of religious language and messaging that was on display. So, um, Sarah, I'm curious, you know, how would, how would you describe what you, uh, what you witnessed in each presentation? Yeah, I mean, we get two very different versions of religious life in America from the Democratic National Convention to the Republican National Convention, you know, going into the Democratic National Convention, there had some been some noise from conservative Catholics that Joe Biden is not a real Catholic because he's pro-choice. And in fact, he's quite observant and he goes to mass and very much considers himself a real Catholic. And with the DNC in general, I think we, we saw a more ecumenical, um, version of religious life in the US um, than we got at the RNC, which is not totally surprising, but I would say it was still a little bit startling um, to see mm. the way that the, the GOP at, the, at this moment in its history seems to be wrapping a very particular strand of Christianity into pretty overt ethno-nationalism um, under a president who, you know, will, will We'll talk about you know religion in very superficial terms from time to time, but it doesn't seem to be you know it's not really a core part of his identity in the way that mm -hmm. it was for like George W. Bush, a Republican president of the past. Um, mm -hmm. So you know, and I and I know that that was disturbing to a number of of people of faith, both in the evangelical world, even people outside of it, um, to see this really sort of exclusionary faith on display at the RNC this week. Well, I wonder, I wonder for you, for somebody who, you know, grew up in this world and, and knows intimately, you know, the, the people that are the type of person that, it, you know, seems to be very fervently supporting um, Trump in this moment and, and, and just the, you know, the blatant hypocrisy that seems to be on display in, in these moments. So what is... You know, what are you, what, what is that like for you to see it? Yeah, it's, I'm grateful in a way that I have that background because I think it helps me write about it in a more informed way. But at the same time, it's, it is actually very, very difficult. Um, especially when I look at conservative women going on stage and, and defending mm. the things that they defended at the RNC this week. You know, there was yeah. sort of this fleeting sense of, you know, they're there before the grace of God when I, in a way, um, because in the tradition that I sort of grew up in, if you can call it a tradition, that was really the only way for a woman to have any sort of authority or influence was to take the conservative activist route, the Phyllis Schlafly route is what I've always called it. Um, and you dress mm -hmm. in a very particular way and you present yourself in a very particular way. And there are these you know, set positions that you're allowed to defend and not as far as it goes. Um, and so, you know, to see that in power right now, it is very difficult. It feels like I've been <laughs> fighting it basically since I was in, in college. And I, I would say I often felt during both terms of the Obama administration 
that maybe some mainstream liberals had stopped taking the Christian right as seriously because it didn't seem to be as much of a threat. You know, we won same-sex marriage at the Supreme Court. Obama was in power. You know, it, it seemed like maybe that the, to them anyway, that the Christian right was marginalized. And um, and I didn't think <laughs> I didn't think that was true. I thought that they were just sort of reorganizing um, for you know sort of to, for their next move. And you know, it turns out, um, I guess. I don't want to sound like, oh, I told you so that this was going to be an issue. It just sort of confirmed sort of my worst nightmare scenario for what could what could possibly happen after Obama left office. Um, yeah, and it's so, hard. It's hard to feel comforted saying I told you so when, it's so <laughs> when everything's been burned down around you. Right, and like they're doing things that I've been hearing people talk about doing since I was a teenager. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's. I, I would add also really quickly that it's why in my writing I've always taken issue with the idea that Donald Trump is some kind of aberration in conservative politics or, you know, represents something new in the conservative movement. I think, you know, these ideas have been around for a very long time. Hmm. Don, how about for, for you in the circles that you're moving in and, and particularly the readership that you have, how, how do these things, um, how do the, the politics of the moment play being at a, a Christian publication? Yeah, well, um, I think the thing that's been top of mind for me um, as I kind of look at politics right now, our, our readership is largely um, mainline Protestants. So you're Presbyterians, you're United Methodists, you're Episcopals. Um, and we're also, we're also, I think the Christian Century is a very intellectual and heady magazine. And so one of the things I really try not to do, um, and this is probably going to sound more condescending than I mean it to be, but I really try not to punch down at evangelicals. Um, and, I, mm-hmm. and I don't mean punch down in the sense that, uh, you know, our readership is, you know, better and more elite, but just the idea that we kind of, I don't want to just complain about evangelicals all the time or point out like, here's this other thing they've done and here's this other thing that they've done. So I, I think mm. that our our coverage of the election has been a little different in that way, that it's um, obviously you, you can't ignore <laughs> what's happening um, on the religious right and among social conservatives, um, but it's more, I think, analytical and what are the, the repercussions of this or repercussions of that. I mean, some things we just have to cover, like the, the photo op with the Bible after the protesters had been mm. cleared. Like, we had that up on our website like that day, which is not something we normally do because we are a biweekly publication and still very print first. And so um, mm. <laughs> I, it's not necessarily that breaking news is going to be on the website if we even, you know, are doing breaking news. We're very print-centered and uh, usually about a month out of what's going on actually in the world. I'm working on mm-hmm. the September 23rd issue right now. Um, so, I mean, I, th- mm. I think there's just an, an awareness of how much religion is being 
referenced, I guess, the, the, the how central religion has become, I think, for, for both parties. And whether that's, um, you know, strategic or sincere, who knows. Um, but I think that's kind of the yeah. story that we're tracking is why and how religion is so central to both platforms. And you've actually been at the Christian Century only uh, relatively recently. Before that, yeah. you were at a Catholic publication, right? The uh, Global Sisters Report, right? Yes, I was writing um, about Catholic nuns. Yep. Yeah. So, so how how was that experience, and maybe the readership there, different? You know, in terms of their appetite and the and the approach that was taken in those pages. Wow, I think, <laughs> well, so most of the readership at Global Sisters Report um, were nuns. It was not for nuns exclusively, but that's what we covered. And so a lot of our readership were nuns. And they are, <laughs> they're, a, they're a radical activist bunch. And so I think a, a lot more of the stories were about um, activism and protests and mm. getting really nitty gritty into policy issues because a lot of these sisters are policy wonks. Like it's wild, um, and <laughs> so in a way that I'm and now that I'm we assume down at you know St. Mary's or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> School yeah. For girls. No, <laughs> it's I mean, a whole di different I idea of a nun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sisters are are pretty cool people. Um, actually, this is not relevant, but I just want to throw this in. I once interviewed a nun who was a biologist and she taught at a school, I forget which school now, but she told me like her ministry, like what she thought she was called to do as a biologist was to find a plant-based cure for cancer. I was just like, oh, okay. Like that's not what you hear normally, but I like to share that story, that little anecdote yeah. all the time because yeah. sisters are doing a lot in a lot of different spheres. There's this general concern about obviously the Christian nationalist movement and and the way that the you know this this um, well I, I I guess I shouldn't be saying you know fringe element to to uh, the Christian community because as Sarah was saying you know obviously this is it's taking up a lot of the air a lot of the oxygen in the in in the space right that these these very inflammatory um, uh, uh, xenophobic, you know, uh, interpretations of, of religion and, and, and so forth. Um, it's not, it, it is mainstream. It's not, it's not a, a fringe um, group in that political space. But, um, but our, the conversation focuses so much on, on that brand of Christianity. And I'm, I'm curious how, um, so to your point, Sarah, before about about going, looking also at what the, how the DNC or how the Democratic Party uh, is positioning itself and presenting religion, particularly with a figure like Kamala Harris, who I think you know kind of has three different religious identities, if not more, you know, worked into her, the the fabric of her of her family. You know, she's got a Jewish husband. She herself is is this blend of of Baptist and and Hindu. Um, and sort of personifying this idea of this multiculturalism, of this of this uh, pluralism that that is for some sections of the of, of our of our country, hopefully what the what we're aspiring to. So I wonder how that 
that image in contrast to the to the to the other one across the aisle is is selling what do you guys what do you guys think yeah i think it's complicated um i think because with a figure like kamala harris i think it the stories about her or her background aren't really packaged as religion stories in the same way that certain stories mm -hmm. about religion and, and among conservatives and the, and the Christian right are, are packaged as religion stories. And so it's not always clear to me like how much attention that, that that's receiving or it's at least it's almost taken as, as a, as a given and not examined, I think, or analyzed. Um, in the same way, which like I, it's a like it's a fun fact, you know, as opposed yeah, to right. Uh -huh. And it, I think it contributes perhaps to a mistaken idea that you know that there isn't a there isn't a religious left that's worth examining or worth acknowledging or worth analyzing in the same way that there is a Christian right, um, which I I think is a mistake. Hmm. Don, what about with you? Does does any of any of those questions of of broader pluralism or or interfaith come into um, the news pieces that you're writing? Yeah, I mean, I I think one of my just as an advocate of religion journalism, a thing that bothers me is when um, religion in the United States is synonymous with Christianity, and then further than that, synonymous with evangelicalism and I mean, that obviously is just not true. <laughs> I mean, you know that. We all know that, um, especially, mm -hmm. I would think, listeners of this podcast, that religion does not mean Christian. And so even though I write for a or edit at a Christian publication, one in the, when I'm shaping my news, my six pages of my news section, my little baby, every two weeks, <laughs> um, <laughs> what, I, what I think about is, like, if you are a person who considers yourself well-informed on religion, what are the stories that you need to know or probably should know? And often I pull mm -hmm. in stories about um, Muslim communities or Hindu communities or anything outside of the United States even, um, even if it is sometimes still Christian. But I, I, I think if you're going to be well-informed about religion, it can't just be, um, like I said earlier, like, look what those evangelicals did today. Um, or just kind of, mm -hmm. you know, interdenominational within mainline Protestantism, like just what people are moving and shaking and doing within there. So I, for me, um, kind of pushing those boundaries of, um, pluralism within, within the confines of a explicitly Christian, I mean, the Christian century, um, that's one of my little mini missions <laughs> that I work, that I work on. What have been, if you can think of some of those other religion stories, either by, by your colleagues or other people that, that you follow that have captured your interest, but maybe slipped through the cracks of, of the, the major headlines having to do with, with um, yeah, other, other religious groups, things that are exciting to you? Yeah. Um, well, actually, I think my favorite religion story of the year so far is back in April, Aisha Khan at Religion News Service, she did a story on these young black Muslims who were recording um, oral histories from elder members of their community. 
and it was just so well written. It like I read it and I like sent her a DM on Twitter immediately because it was so powerful <laughs> and so well written. And one of the interesting like aspects of the story that she drew out was it was this was in the early days of uh, COVID nineteen and where there was this whole kind of like anti old people kind of narrative being driven out and one of the themes that she pulled on was how um, elders are like the, the people who were doing this project, like our elders are like valuable and they're not disposable. And it just, Oh, it was so good. If you, I mean, I put it in the century, I pulled it, I made it like my lead story. You can find it on our website, but if you just mm. search for it, I think everyone should read it. It was so good. So good. Great. Sarah, how about for you? Yeah, I was realizing as I was thinking about your question, I I have been so focused on the Christian right. I think that's partly because of where I, I work in a way. I, I worked mm. for the New York Magazine and before that, the New Republic, which our audience is, I feel, where there's not a whole lot of religion literacy. And as far as our interest in religion goes, it has to be very politicized, if that makes sense. So I sort of end up being in this role as a translator <laughs> for the Christian right. Yeah. And it uh -huh. takes up so much of my time. And I actually, I could not think of anything, which is actually very sad and, and depressing. I was trying to think of a religion story and I used to be so much better at paying more attention that, you know, wasn't about Trump or necessarily wasn't about, you know, somebody being caught in some act of hypocrisy. Um, mm. So that's not a very satisfying answer to the question. I'm just sort of disappointed that I don't have a story that I can think of. Disappointed with myself, mind you, not with the state of religion journalism. Well, that, it squares with, um, in contrast to religion reporters, you know, the shorthand calling it the God beat. What was it that you called your your area of reporting? Me, I call it the dystopia beat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I cover labor and inequality for the most part. So, uh. Uh, so sunshine and rainbows all day long for Sarah absolutely, Jones. Absolutely. Unicorns. It's great. <laughs> all right. Well, um, you know, for the second part of our, our show, I like to um, cede the floor to to my two guests to see if, if there are things that, that you all uh, would like to ask each other about each other's background or... or things that have come up during our conversation so far that um, you can talk about together. So um, Sarah or Dawn, do you have any questions for each other about um, your stories? Yeah, I guess I would ask, you know, Dawn, you know, I, 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 I have talked a little bit about how it feels for, for me to see the Christian right kind of in power and so prominent and sort of sucking up all the air in the room to the point that the conversations and stories that we tell about religion are, are very often just stories we tell about the Christian right. Um, and I was just wondering, you know, how you felt about that as, as, as a journalist and also a person of faith yourself. Yeah, well, I mean, like I said, I, I have kind of made it a mission, at least where I have influence to, to counter that. <laughs> um, and I think you can't obviously if, I mean, news is news. You can't ignore certain stories. But um, I make a very um, deliberate effort to have religious diversity on our pages just because I think it's important. And I think if you aren't deliberate about it, it won't happen. 
um, I actually, actually, you know, I, I, there's a people, people section within my news section. And it just occurred to me the other day, I pull a lot of wire stories from religion news service and I realized they had a people section. So I went to go look at the people section, like maybe this will, you know, help me come up with my people. And there were five stories and four of them were about Jerry Falwell Jr. And I don't mm. say that to knock, you know, religion news service at all, but like, that's just it's like, if you are not deliberate, um, you'll spend all your time talking about, um, you know, the religious right or a Christian right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, 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 as a journalist, I just try to strive for diversity and make deliberate attempts to do that as a person of faith. <sighs> Man, <laughs> I mean, I, I think it, it, it sometimes does feel like erasure um, when mm-hmm. people, you know, like this is what it means to be a Christian for so many people is who may not have, you know, close relationships with anyone who is not that, um, like, this is what it means to be a Christian. And that can be, um, annoying (laughs) at times or, Oh, when everyone was like, Oh my gosh, here's the emergence of the religious left. Like these people have been around forever. Um, that was really, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that was really funny to me. I, I thought when, all these stories are popping up like, look, here's the religious left, the Christian left, the answer to, you know, the Christian rights. Like, I mean, in many instances, like these denominations have been around since the start of the country. Like, this is not new. Right, right, mm-hmm. right. Have you heard of the American Friends Service Committee? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, but that does actually um, lean into a question I had for you because I uh, was reading your the story you just did on the the Quaker school, and they were oh. trying to decertify their union, or they did decertify the union, um, and that was I was just like, how did she get this story? And I really would just like to know how did you get it, and how long did it take you to like write it? Was this like you got a press release and then you just like cashed it out, or like? How did you find out about it? And then how did you go about reporting it? And can you give him brief, just like a little capsule of, of what the what the through line was for that story? Yeah, so this school in, is the Brooklyn Friends School, and they've been around since the 19th century. Um, they have historic links to the, the, the Brooklyn Monthly Meeting here, although they are legally separate. And they have uh, filed a petition with the National Labor Relations Board arguing that the union, having a union violates Quaker values. And specifically, the argument is that having a third party, in this case, the United Auto Workers, um, violates values because they're having to sort of, they can't communicate directly with members of the bargaining unit and Quaker values do put kind of a, a major emphasis on direct and open communication. The problem with this is that Quakers, as a tradition, although there's no sort of dogma or teaching on labor or the necessity of supporting labor, historically they have been very pro-labor and very involved in the in the labor movement. I mean, Bayard Rustin, who founded the A. Philip Randolph Institute at the AFL-CIO, was a Quaker. Um, so people were very surprised to hear that the school was trying to make this argument before the NLRB that somehow having a union was anti-Quaker. And of course, people started to wonder if it was partly because it was the United Auto Workers, which is associated more with blue collar workers. 
And because the union at the school has a, is a wall-to-wall union, meaning it's not just professional workers like teachers, it's maintenance staff, it's cafeteria workers. And if that if that had ended up conflicting with the sort of image that the school was selling to parents, which is obviously a really difficult question for people to, to have to contemplate. Hmm. So I this was a wild story. I first heard something actually from a coworker whose daughter had had previously attended um, the school, and it ended up being, I think, one of those situations that a reporter loves where people are really eager to go on the record. Um, they did not need a lot of convincing. Um, it, I would say it probably took around a week and a half to line up interviews. I mean, there were a bunch of interviews that just I could not fit in the article. Um, and it was complicated. I write a lot of labor stories. I've written a lot of uh, stories on labor and education specifically. So teachers striking, for example. Um, but religion was such a huge aspect of the story, and I really wanted to get it right. And while I am you know, somewhat familiar with the, the Friends tradition, I'm obviously an outsider to it. And yet it was the heart of the story was this debate over what does it mean to be Quaker? And are Quakers really anti-union? And so that was really, really tricky to tease out. I, I hope I, I did that well, I, I think. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, it, was, it was wild. Um, I, I contacted the school for comment and they told me that they had given out my contact information to parents who supported their petition before the National Labor Relations Board to decertify the union. And, obviously happy to talk to anyone regardless of what side that they they fall on and on this particular issue but it was a little surprising um i've written plenty of labor stories with where um management is not excited about a staff union and is fact very hostile or resorting to pretty aggressive tactics and i've never had someone give out my contact information before and it was this quaker school in brooklyn that did it so it was yeah, um, just a really interesting tension between having, you know, a Quaker identity and a social justice focus and, you know, trying to be the school where they really do try to, to um, allocate a lot of money and financial aid and try to live that out in the curriculum and yet having to survive on the independent school market here, which is obviously extraordinarily competitive and extraordinarily expensive and ends up catering inevitably, I think, to a very, very small circle of people. Hmm. Uh, other questions that um, that Sarah you might have for for Dawn about her work or, or upbringing or anything? Um, yeah, I mean, I I would love I think maybe to know a little bit more about you know why Mennonites and why why you know what drew you to that tradition and and why did you, it become a home for you? Yeah. Um. I think as I have, well, a thing I often try to describe is that in the churches, I did a lot of church hopping as a young adult, and I often found denominations that were all Jesus and no justice, or all justice and no Jesus, or just like nominally about Jesus. Like you'd hear a sermon, it'd be all about justice, and there'd be like maybe a cross, but they didn't say anything about Jesus. And when I mm. found the Mennonites, I found this kind of perfect balance of Jesus and justice. And I was like, these are my people. So um, 
that is how I, <laughs> that is how I started um, hanging out with the Mennonites. And then that was in Indianapolis. Um, I was home because long story, my sister was sick and I needed to find a Bible study. And I ended up at a Mennonite church and then started going to the church. And then when I moved to Kansas City, actually for my job at Global Sisters Report, I met my husband shortly thereafter. And he was also a disaffected Baptist and didn't go to church. And I was like, why did you come to church with me? And the very first service that he went to with me was, um, <laughs> it was the Sunday before the 4th of July. And there was a guest preacher who gave an entire sermon on why churches should not have American flags. And I didn't know my now husband that well at the time but I knew he was from a place called Liberty, Missouri, and that his father had been the mayor. And I was like, oh my gosh, he's gonna think I'm this like <laughs> radical, like off the walls type person, but he was really into it. So it worked out. That's great. All right, you got a church and a husband out of the deal. That's right? pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, that kind of that jives with, with your thing, right? You guys, you and Ed were hanging out in the, the humanist scene? Yeah, it, we were both sort of disaffected from it too. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we both worked for First Amendment advocacy groups in Washington, D.C., and that's, that's how we met. And my, my partner, Ed, now works for the, the New York Society of Ethical Culture, which is um, one of the kind of the last remnants of congregational humanism. Um, although I wouldn't say that both of us re really identify with congregational humanists. Um, we're just sort of safely in the, the non-religious camp at, at this point. <laughs> but yeah, that was another story of love on the hill. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> oh God! Fortunately, neither of us had too much to do with, with the hill. Like, uh -huh. he, probably more than me because he was in policy and I wasn't. Yeah. So <laughs> we're getting sort of to the end of our 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 time here together. I want to take the opportunity to just check in to just see about how you how you both are feeling in this present moment. You know this whether this year, this week, today even, and, and, and something that's, that's been giving you joy and hope looking towards the future. I think it always gives me hope to see people protesting. Like I, I had to cover the Republican National Convention this week and I should clarify, you know, I am a journalist, but I work for a magazine and I'm allowed to have opinions. So <laughs> I can say that the Republican National Convention was extremely disturbing to me. Um, and so I had to I had to tweet out the president's speech on one of our magazine's Twitter accounts, and which was awful. Um, mm. And I, but I, there were moments where I could hear people protesting, and that really, really that 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 gave me hope um, on what was otherwise I think a very dark night. That people are still protesting, people are still fighting, and haven't given up the idea that protests can be useful and can achieve change. I felt that way about the NBA strike this way, uh, this week mm. too. I thought that was really monumental and important, and I was really glad to see that spread outside the NBA to other to other sports as well. Um, and that really made me hopeful. Don, what about for you? What's what's um, giving you hope in this in this moment? Um, I mean, it's it's been a hard year. <laughs> I think uh, I. Yeah. had all the normal kind of COVID stresses that a lot of people have. And um, on top of that, all of, you know, 
headline after headline of black people being killed. I, um, I think there's just a level of trauma for that as for like all black Americans. Um, but I think mm-hmm. even further than that, I'm like a deeply empathic person. And so there was a period of time where I felt like I was carrying like all the grief of all the world. And I just like could not engage mm. with the news. And I'm a news editor. <laughs> I was only online mm-hmm. as much as I needed to be to do my job. And then I was like logged off. Like I just, I could not deal with another story of any type of grief or sadness because I was wearing all of it. But what has given me hope and joy is um, I'm reading a lot of um, Christian contemplative and mystic writers and this idea of just the evolution of consciousness and the evolution of the cosmos that it is all leading toward resurrection and unification and that even if I can't see how my participation in that is paying off right now, it is. And so that is what is keeping me mm. grounded and with a sense of hope. Mm-hmm. Thomas Merton has a quote, and I can't, I'm going to butcher this because I'm not going to say it exactly right, but it's about doing the right thing, even when not only do you not see the effects of it, but even when it seems like what you've done has been counterproductive but it's not about mm. the end result. Like if you are going to be committed to the work, it it's not about the end result, like for you. I mean, this is just the mm-hmm. way that the, the universe is moving. This is the way that humanity is moving. And so you just, you, you do your part. And even if you cannot see it, you that's, you know, that's what, you know, faith is <laughs> like, it's uh, peace is inevitable. Love is inevitable. Yeah, I think- Sarah, what do you, what do you think? Sorry. Mm-hmm. I, you yeah, know, I, don't have, I don't have a religious tradition, but um, for me, it's, it has more to do with like uh, my political beliefs. And I'm a socialist, so I, you know, I believe that there's there's a struggle, and that I have an obligation to it, and I have an obligation to everyone else to stay engaged in that struggle, to show solidarity, um, to keep talking about and fighting for a more peaceful and more dignified and more humane world, and that might that world may not come to fruition until long after i'm dead but it certainly won't exist at all i think if i don't fight for alongside everyone else who's currently fighting for it and Mm -hmm. so that's something that um has been very helpful to me this this year um and has been sort of a a source of of strength to me even though it's not you know based on a set of religious or, or spiritual beliefs well, this has been this has been so uh, great. I really hope that ending on a positive note helped put a little glimmer of hope on on the dystopia beat there, so we can <laughs> <laughs> uh, look fo- look forward to a brighter day. But um, I really I appreciate um, the both of you and the you know the work that you're doing out out in the world. It really is um, it's great to know that you know they're two really tenacious fighters for. For truth and justice, and um, and helping share that and give voice to that in the world. So thank you. Thanks for for having me on, and Don. It was really great to talk to you. Likewise. Uh-huh. 
Dear listener, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. Thanks again to Dawn and Sarah for joining me. Look for their writing at The Christian Century and New York Magazine, respectively. As always, I want to give a shout out to my fellow Interfaith astronauts, Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz Miller, and our musical master, Jeff Philosopher. And of course, thank you, dear listener, for spending your hour with us. You can find our entire back catalog of Interfaith-ish episodes wherever you find and enjoy podcasts. Follow us on social media at Interfaith-ish. Leave us a voicemail on our special listener line, 202-599-2953. And keep writing us about the Interfaith-ish you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Interfaithish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at TacomaRadio.org.